Hi, everybody. Welcome to Verses from the Void, your twice-monthly foray into the world of horror poetry. On today's episode, I have uh, Stephanie Parent on, and she's going to be reading from her collection, uh, Every Poem a Potion, Every Song a Spell. How are you doing today, Stephanie? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on. Yeah, thanks so much for coming on. Um, it occurred to me that I did not ask you for your bio. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. So would, you, would you mind telling the listeners a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have a master's degree in writing from the University of Southern California, but um, I've kind of had like a, a funny relationship with writing, um, kind of going in and out of it throughout the years. Like I, I was pretty serious about it when I was when I was younger, and then I took a long time off, and I was actually um, working at a commercial dungeon, which does not figure into this particular book too much. But I always like to mention it because a lot of my writing is about it. Um, and even if you know, I think you can kind of see little hints of it here and there. So I basically stopped writing when I started working at the dungeon, but then um, working there for so long really like reinvigorated my desire to write over time. So I started working on a novel and started writing actually a memoir about my time at the dungeon. And then um, when COVID happened, I was working on that memoir, but sort of having all this time and having a lot of changes in my life, I wanted to write a lot more. And that was when I got back into writing poetry. And that was where this book came from. I was actually started it at the same time that I was working on the memoir um, because the memoir also used fairy tales. I've always been in love with fairy tales since I was a young child and just really inspired by them. So I was kind of writing these fairy, this fairy tale poetry as a release from my other writing. And um, my daily life right now, I'm not working at the dungeon anymore. It's sadly closed during the pandemic, but I do still identify as a sex worker. I'm very vocal about sex worker rights, and that's something that's important to me in my writing. Um, and I'm basically, I work as a freelance editor. I have also a pure bar and I shouldn't have, I should not have said pure bar, but it's okay. I don't think anybody's, I should have just said bar instructor, <laughs> not use the brand name. I'm a bar instructor. Um, like, a, it's an exercise program. So I do that and I do freelance editing and I'm really working on, um, making the transition to becoming a writer, right? Uh, novels, nonfiction, poetry, pretty much everything. And Every Poem a Potion is my first full-length book to be released. And next year I have my first novel coming out, and that is a ghost story set in a commercial dungeon, and it's coming out with Cemetery Gates Media next year. Oh my God, that's so awesome. So you wear many hats. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, that's great. It's really interesting um, that you mentioned the kind of... Um, dual inspiration that you're experiencing writing um your memoir and also poetry uh yes. when i was working mm -hmm. on my master's thesis i kept really hungering for other forms of expression <laughs> and i think uh -huh. it's because like when you have the one thing that you're really deeply concentrated on i i find that sometimes your brain is just like oh but i'm busy generating all these ideas so here's some more ideas and it's just like oh yep. god <laughs> Was yes. that your experience with it? Yes, for sure. And I think I just needed a little emotional release. Like I needed the memoir. I really thought, and I, it's so ironic how these things work out because I really thought the memoir was going to be the thing that was going to sell and that was going to like launch me into, you know, the literary world. And it turned out that that didn't happen, at least for now. So this poetry was just kind of like, this is my release. This is where I get my real deepest emotions out and just kind of pour it out on the page. And then of course the poetry is the one that ended up getting published right. so maybe maybe that's an argument that we should be going with like our you know rawest deepest feelings sometimes <laughs> yeah that's true and it's interesting because I 
I don't know. I think that that's something that poetry can do, but it's interesting because memoir is, you know, kind of a deliberate exercise in investigating the truth and expressing it. But I think that sometimes it's just easier to do that in an emotive way with poetry. <laughs> yes, I agree. Yes. Yeah. And you don't have to, you're, you're not so tied to everything having to be literally, literally true in a poem and you can use like other people's stories. Like I did in this using all the fairy tales. So. Mm-hmm. I find memoir a really fascinating medium also though. Like it's, uh, because I think a lot of people see it as straightforward biography, but memoir can take so many different wonderful weaving paths and it yes. can just be like centered on a singular experience or series of experiences, which it sounds like your memoir is. Yeah. And I mean, also in mine, I was using the fairy tales, which is why my mind was on them in the first place. Like I was trying to weave together like fairy tale and myth with my experience at the dungeon. Um, and then that was causing me to listen to a lot of fairy tale lectures. And also because it was the pandemic, there was so much stuff online. I found this great, um, anybody who's listening to this, anybody who enjoys my book would want to check out the Carter Howe School of Folklore and the Fantastic. And I started listening to all their lectures that they were doing online during COVID and about all these obscure fairy tales. And it just reignited my interest in the darkness of fairy tales and their original form that I'd had when I was much younger. So I was really getting into all this and wanted to express it even more. Yeah. So the the memoir, I think maybe it was just not the right time um, with COVID and all the distractions in the world, but maybe I'll come back to it someday. (laughs) Yeah. Sometimes real life is too real. (laughs) Yes. The filter of something like poetry, (laughs) even in reading other people's experiences. And that's so funny, like our conversation has naturally answered the first two questions I had lined up. (laughs) Um, But I guess I can dive into one that's kind of related, which is, how is your process for writing poetry different than the other mediums that you work in? Um, Yeah, poetry is much more intuitive for me, I would think. Um, And again, it also, nonfiction and fiction varies, but um, with nonfiction and fiction, I would I definitely set out to create something specific. Like I'm like, I'm writing a story and I want it to be a story that I can publish or I'm writing a chapter in a book or whatever it is. And I think with poetry, I give myself a lot more room to just play. And if it, if it turns out not good and I just have to delete the document, it doesn't really seem like such a big deal or such a waste of time um, as it sometimes can when I have this goal of like writing a novel or or writing a short story collection. Um, so, cause when I started this, I didn't think it was going to be a book that was going to be published. I was just kind of releasing my feelings. So um, in that way, it's much more intuitive and I'm more able to take risks, I would say. Um, what else? Yeah. More. And I'm more, um, I'm not so focused on trying to have a strict narrative that the reader necessarily understands in the same way that I intended it. Because I know, especially with something like this, where I picked a different fairy tale for every poem to be inspired by, I realized that whether or not you've read the fairy tale and read it recently is really going to impact your reading experience. And so I know people who do read the original fairy tales are probably going to get a lot more little hidden references that I put in there. Um, But that's okay, because with poetry, I think you there is more of an expectation that the reader will just come to it and get what they want to get out of it and can interpret it differently. So that kind of creates a different experience for me when I'm writing it. Um, I also think that I I didn't go to school for poetry, although I took a lot of wonderful poetry classes when I was there, just because one of my favorite teachers was the poetry teacher. Her name was Amy Gersler, and she's a great poet if anybody wants to 
um, check her out. But I never really studied with the intention of becoming a poet. So I don't think I have quite the same attachment to it that it necessarily like has to be good or it has to be something that is going to go in the New Yorker. You know, it has to follow these <laughs> rules. It's just more of like a release for me. And then, of course, I go back after and edit and take out, you know, the, the things that don't need to be there or the, the messy parts. And I do try to shape it after. But I think in that original drafts, I I allow myself a much more freedom and play than I maybe do in other forms of writing. I think that's a really interesting thing about kind of genre hopping too. It's like whatever yeah. <laughs> is not your dominant one, you're going to feel more room to play in. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Just like, well, I don't totally know all of the rules, so I'm going to just do whatever. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. There's less concentration on knowing it so you can break it. Just like, yes. just let it be what it is and flow intuitively. I find that because I focus so much on poetry, when I do that with fiction, I feel a little bit freer. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's just like, and you know, um, I don't think my fiction <laughs> is quite as successful as uh, poetry in terms of what's <laughs> accepted. So it's like, um, well, I don't know how long you've been submitting fiction, but I mean, this is a really challenging time, too. So I don't know if you can judge by what's yeah, going on right now. That's true. And I think that, you know, to some extent, it, I think that that fluidity and sense of play can be rewarded. <laughs> uh-huh, sometimes, I think so, uh, too. <laughs> sometimes if I go too far in not knowing <laughs> rules or breaking rules, it's like, I, I don't know if this experiment was successful for yeah, me. Yeah, and I, I mean, and then it is different <laughs> in fiction, too, when you're doing that, because while there is experimental fiction for sure I think most people come to fiction or come to prose with an expectation that they're going to get a narrative that they understand on some level versus (laughs) with poetry (laughs) there's not necessarily that same expectation so it's a little freer yeah and I mean that was something that I experienced a little bit reading the collection because um and I'll get into this a little later but um I was like oh I don't know all of these fairy tales like this is awesome this is an excuse to research because I'm a nerd and I love researching. So it's like, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I tried think, to, I tried to do a mixture of ones that were more common and ones that were less common. Yeah. And I think that you can get a lot of context clues. Um, or at least I was able to kind of like suss out maybe what the fairy tale was about. Mm-hmm. Um, if I wasn't familiar with it, but yeah, I'm not all that familiar with the like original version. So I'm excited to check those out after I finish reading your collection and just have those light bulbs go off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so with that, maybe we should get to the first poem, uh, which is Gretel. So this one most people will probably know. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay, yeah. so should, should I just go ahead and read it or, or do you want yep. to talk about it first? Or I'll ask read? questions afterward, yeah. Okay. All right, here we go. Gretel. Who do I love? My breadcrumb brother or my witch mother? The candy house was a trap, the witch said. Storybook witch, warts on her nose and boils on her toes. A trap for him, she said. She would kill him and cook him and eat him. Loveless witch, daughterless witch. The witch did not feed me cakes and confections. Perhaps she feared temptation. The sight of my fattening flesh, that was not the fate she intended for me, as she did for my brother. I tried to save him. I slipped him a bird bone to replace his own finger when the witch's nail claws wrapped round it. I told him not to gorge himself. Still, I watched him grow wide and heavy and slow, 
plotting the confines of his cage, the grotesque on show, while I shrunk. I wondered, in the world out there, would I always be small, a bird scrounging for crumbs? I wondered, would the witch teach me how to fly like those birds perched on the frosted roof of her cottage? How to ensnare men and all their appetites? I wondered, was the witch's pockmarked face, her withered limbs beneath her greasy cloak, just a disguise? Was this all a test to see how long I could remain, how much I hungered, whether I could be trusted? My stepmother had never touched me, never loved me, but the witch. Sometimes when I'd finished my chores, she laid a hand on my bony wrist, her fingers gentle as feathers drifting to earth. I kept a close watch on the witch's eyes. Sometimes I thought I saw wisdom, deep brown as the bark of an old tree. Sometimes I saw yearning, the blue of a wandering stream. But in the end, when the witch peered into the cage where my fat brother lay, I saw jealousy and greed, the same shade as my stepmother's eyes. I knew neither choice was the right one. I knew what I had to do. I gathered all my strength, the last crumbs of sugar in my veins. I pushed the witch's bony body into the fire and left her for the flames. Thank you so much. God, I love that ending. <laughs> I was like, I can't wait to hear her read it out loud. <laughs> so impactful. Uh, yeah, so I, I think that probably, I'm going to assume that listeners are familiar with the Hansel and Gretel story. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's pretty uh, archetypal, I think, to a lot of our childhoods. Um, but it was interesting because this poem really um, emphasized the gender disparity, which I don't think is something that ever really occurred to me when I thought about this before um you know because hansel is being prepped for consumption and gretel is relegated to the domestic sphere and then at different points in the poem gretel's kind of almost positioned as a protege to the witch yes. before becoming <laughs> disillusioned with that um could you comment on that choice a little bit yeah i mean that was how i'd like always read the poem a bit because why else would the witch not put Gretel, I mean, how I'd read the fairy tale, sorry. That was how I'd read the fairy tale um, when I was younger, because why would the witch not put Gretel in the cage unless she's, you know, planning something else for Gretel? And um, I kind of saw her as like, maybe she wants a daughter, Gretel could be her daughter. Um, I think throughout fairy tales, there's kind of a dichotomy of witches versus fairy godmothers. And they both play the role of, they could almost be a mother to the main, the female protagonist who often has like an evil mother or an evil stepmother and would want, you know, a replacement for that. And the witch sometimes seems like the godmother to begin with, like the witch is offering something enticing in this tale. It's the candy house in snow white. It's the apple, the witch seems good. And it's not until you bite the apple or eat the house that you know, whether you've got a witch or a fairy godmother. Um, so I, I suppose these, most of these tales are, you know, they're, they're comments on what it was like to be often to be a woman in the past and to not have one's own um, autonomy and to have to rely on on people so you, on other people in 
in levels of authority. So often the female protagonist would have, you know, they would have be under the thumb of an evil mother or stepmother. And then to get out of that, they would have to rely on somebody else. And really all they had to go on was appearance and outward signs and, and not knowing what someone's, whether someone's intentions were good or bad, maybe until it is too late. And that could be the stepmother or I'm sorry, that could be the witch fairy godmother figure. It could be the husband, beastly husband figure, which also is in some of these poems. Um, so yeah, it's all kind of, I think, commentaries on what actual women in the past had to face as they were growing up. And then of course, also the desire for, for love. Um, I see it as Gretel, like hoping that somebody is actually going to love her and care for her. Um, but then at the end, she, she decides that that's not going to happen. <laughs> Hopefully yeah, that, that made sense. <laughs> no, absolutely. It did. Yeah. And that's kind of like two dueling archetypes of like female adulthood, right? It's like the mean mommy and <laughs> the good <Yep>. mommy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, and I mean, and also it could be the same person because as you are getting older and you are, you know, you always loved your parents, but then by a certain age, when your interests and theirs are maybe not aligning any longer and you have to take that step to be independent and to have your own belief system or your own values and there's a kind of a yeah. destruction or a violence that happens there yeah or certainly just that same sense of disillusionment where you start to see the fallibility if yes. you haven't already <laughs> usually when you're a teenager those you know uh rose-colored glasses come off more and more <laughs> Yes. <laughs> like, oh, okay. Sometimes it's beforehand, depending on what people's different circumstances are, of course. But yeah, it's interesting that that kind of, um, I don't know, like, were they intended to be didactic, these fairy tales, or were they just kind of stories that were... I mean, when I was younger, I read a lot of books about, um, like, the history of fairy tales. And I mean, nobody knows, you know, and there's lots of different answers because they were told um, over so many, you know periods of time to different people. But um, I think one of the theories is that fairy tales were told to young women, like to kind of give them advice and comfort them as they entered into their adult lives. And that's one of the reasons there's so many fairy tales about like beastly husbands who turn out to be princes in disguise because women were forced into arranged marriages and were scared. So it was like a way of kind of comforting them and also warning them entails like Bluebeard and I, I didn't put Bluebeard in this in this collection maybe I'll have to do another collection so I can do Bluebeard um but where a husband you know looks great and turns out to be evil so warning them to be careful and um just kind of hidden messages to to women who didn't have autonomy traditionally in the past and giving them this kind of secret autonomy through characters like the fairy godmother or the witch who has these powers and mm -hmm. things like that different ways in which women wield power. Yes, exactly. And, and I mean, not just, I, I, the, some of the books I read really were focused on the, the female aspect of it since these, they often had female protagonists and were told by women, but you could definitely expand that to all people because there are tales with male protagonists too. And I'm sure, although I didn't get into this, you know, in the books, I'm not non-binary and I don't really feel comfortable um, writing about non-binary perspective, but I think there have been fairy tale studies done on characters who could be interpreted that way. And oh, that's that some of, yeah, yeah, some of these, these um, with the, the ideas of transformation or having different forms could be interpreted as 
having different genders or sexualities or things of that nature as well. All the fairy tale elements could be used as metaphor to really describe so many aspects of human identity. Mm-hmm. And that's something we'll get into um, toward the end, but I'm so glad we reached into this because like, if anyone is listening and is inspired, like there's so much rich <laughs> yes. ground we could cover. <laughs> yes. <laughs> fairy tales. Oh my goodness. Um, so with this poem specifically also, there's a lot of like body anxiety in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yes. And I guess it always, that. <laughs> yeah, I guess I always did think of it as kind of like a body horror story, but of course as a kid, is, like, yeah. <laughs> I yeah. don't I have mean, those hunger, Yeah. Hunger was like another like absolute reality for the vast majority of the population in the times who would have been hearing these original tales. Most of them were hungry most of the time. So like the idea of like a sugar house would have been, you know, really just magical and, but then where does that turn the line to like gorging yourself to lose your ability to escape? Did I lose you? No. Nope. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I was just thinking. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's fascinating. So it's like, it's almost like a warding against, um, I don't know, I guess what could be promised to you like snake oil salesman and yeah, exactly what people try to trap you in. And I think that, you know, your poem does a lot of good work in creating that that hunger because it's like a literal and metaphorical hunger and also just like the embodiment through the imagery of limbs and veins. And uh, Gretel seems really preoccupied with her smallness. Yes. So I think that was another way of me trying to show the lack of female power or autonomy. So the only way that maybe a woman could have power in this society is by becoming somebody like the witch who uses their magic to entrap. And then is Gretel want to learn how to do that? Does she want to have that kind of power? Does that align with her values? And then the choice that she makes at the end seems to come to decision. That's so interesting. I think that's actually a really good lead up to um, the house on chicken legs. If you want it to. Okay, sure. Yes. Let's jump ahead. Okay. The house on chicken legs. I'll say the fairy tale for this one, since people might not be quite as familiar. This one was based on Baba Yaga or specifically the story of Vasilisa, the beautiful. Her cottage prowls the forest on legs of rubbery flesh, clacking bones, prehistoric claws. It leaves finger, sorry, it leaves footprints large enough to swallow a girl, hood and boots and all. Don't bother to follow the tracks. The house finds you. And when you reach it, Baba Yaga will beckon you inside. The birch tree by the door will tear at your flesh. The dog will nibble at your cold ankles. The cat will scratch your thin wrist. Yaga will demand the impossible to separate the seeds of millet, the peas, and the poppy seeds. But such a task is not so difficult for one who lives in a world of cruel stepmothers, jealous sisters, and forgetful fathers. You have been separating peas from poppy seeds all your life. And when your eyes burn from hours squinting in the dark with only candlelight to guide you, when the scratches on your skin smart and your limbs grow heavy as tree trunks. When you hear those chicken legs rustling beneath your feet and feel the floor thrum, when the house runs and carries you away from everything you've ever known, 
When the old witch snores and it sounds like a cackle, like the sound she will make once she's devoured you, a voice you carry in your pocket will whisper, Morning is wiser than evening, and a light that burns inside a skull is still a light, and you will go on. Thank you so much. Another just, like, I get chills at that ending. (laughs) That's so great. There's such a sense of resolve and resilience that's built into the poem. Like, the reader gets the sense from the outset that things will ultimately be okay, but the horror that comes through it is like the horror of experiencing trauma and surviving trauma. Um, Would you speak to that (laughs) choice a little bit? Um, Yeah, so I feel like a lot of times... In fairy tales, again, it's generally a female protagonist who is set upon with this impossible task, and it's the kind of thing that would never happen in actual life. So in the story of Vasilisa the Beautiful, Baba Yaga the Witch asks her to separate, like, it could be different things, different parts of the story, like rice, find the needle in a in, a, in the rice, or separate the black grains of rice from the white grains of rice grains white grains of rice or separate the peas from the poppy seeds when they're all mixed up together and imagine that that's like literally impossible and in other fairy tales you might know it's similar to you know in Rumpelstiltskin's spin the straw into gold um that type of thing so these are not tasks that anyone might actually have to do in the real world but they and they're analogous to the kind of situations that women might face you know in the past that might be like um you're going to have to marry this rich man that you don't love. Who's like 50 years older than you. Cause that's the only way you're going to survive. That's the only way we're going to have money for our family. Um, or, you know, if they're younger, they're kids like the, the Hansel and Gretel type, you're going to have to go, we're going to abandon you in the woods and you're going to have to find your own food if you want to survive. Cause we can't take care of you. So just these impossible situations that people find themselves in. And then in modern life, of course, we all have our own, traumatic situations that we have to live through in whatever way, just surviving in the modern world, making a living, trying to follow our dreams. Um, it can feel like literally like separating grades of rice, like kind of impossible task that you're never, it's never going to be finished. There's always going to be more work. Um, so that was kind of the idea behind that part of the poem. Um, just a common theme in fairy tales is this impossible task and how are you ever going to do it? And there's the idea, sometimes there's like a magical helper. And I touched on that a little bit at the end of the poem, but you probably wouldn't know unless you'd read the story. Um, because in this story, she does have a magical helper who's like a little doll that she carries in her pocket. And that's where I got the a voice you carry in the pocket will whisper. Um, but it doesn't have to be a doll. It could be, it really, I think, represents the inner voice, like your inner belief that you can triumph and get through the trials and find something better on the other side. Oh, that's fascinating. I totally did not pick up on that in the little. Oh, yeah, I, I knew that things, I knew yeah. that you wouldn't unless you had read the story. But like, I like to put this little like uh, Easter eggs in there for people who would know or people who will read the story. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Oh, I love that. And um, so that sense of like resilience and working through it. Um, what did that inform your choice of using the second person? Um. Yeah, I think so, because and I was thinking from I had just read the fairy tale and I was thinking about like the doll talking to her, the doll like tells her what to do at certain points. Um, 
So I was thinking of like this voice telling you that, you know, you can keep going like your inner voice that it is a part of you, but it's almost coming from outside of you when you, when your I, your first person would want to give up. There's this other part of you that's like beyond you, maybe almost a spiritual part of you that says, keep going. That's fascinating. And have you ever heard of that phenomenon where sometimes people in survival situations will hallucinate a guide? Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's yes. totally what came yeah. to mind. I was like, yeah, 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 yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I had another question about this point too. What was it? Um, oh, yeah. So I'm not overly familiar with the tale of Baba Yaga, but I know that it seems well, to me it's like more there's... than just one tale. She's just kind of like a, such a famous folkloric figure that she's in lots and lots of stories. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, I've, I've just like, I've seen references to her. Like I knew the house on chicken legs, um, mm-hmm. as a concept. Um, and it seems like there's been a lot of like kind of feminist claiming or reclaiming of the Baba Yaga figure lately. Yes, definitely. Um, is your poem's relationship to that idea? Cause it didn't really seem like it was going in that direction. It, it didn't um, really. I mean, I could have written yeah. another poem that was more about that probably. Cause I was so the Vasilisa, the beautiful is a particular fairy tale that uses Baba Yaga. Um, so Vasilisa is like a young girl who finds her way to Baba Yaga's house and gets trapped there and has to complete these impossible tasks before Baba Yaga will let her go. And then at the end, she gets rewarded with the riches that to have a better life. Um, so I was more, this in this case, I was telling it from Vasilisa's point of view. Um, but, but definitely, again, it's that whole idea of the witch archetype being a different kind of feminine power. And there's this traditional ugliness kind of, you know, ugliness and quotation marks associated with the witch, which we saw in the Gretel poem. And in the Gretel poem, I think the narrator actually wondered, is this a disguise? Is there something else underneath? And in this poem, there wasn't quite that same wonder, but I think you could wonder um, if if the Baba Yaga is a disguise. And if it's not a disguise, then there's a kind of power in the grotesqueness of her having this house that's made of chicken bones and has... Um, like actual literal bones as part of it too and skulls she has like skulls in her yard and that's kind of the reference that comes at the end with the um, light that burns inside a skull so this kind of grotesque power is still a power and like a way for women to have power in these times when they did not traditionally um so in that way it is definitely like a feminist a feminist message i believe or yeah way of it sounds almost like she's like operating on the level of domesticating death in that way, like using yeah, skulls definitely. plants and bones in her yes. structure. Like, yes. But not yes. Vasilisa the Beautiful. She is, She's uh, just the heroine. She's a young woman yeah. who has to deal with this experience and then come out stronger on the other side of it. Yeah, she's the one So that- there's a very famous picture. You've probably seen it somewhere because it's actually been the cover for some horror collections, I think. And it's a picture of Vasilisa and she's holding, like she's standing in front of this house with chicken legs and she's holding a skull, which she's using as a lamp. And it has like a candle inside of it. I think if you Google Baba Yaga, it should be one of the first pictures that comes <laughs> up. Um, and I was inspired by that picture. So yes, I think I know the exact one you're talking about. It's yeah. beautiful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's so interesting. So it's like, it's almost too reminding me of those archetypes of maiden, mother, and crone. So mm-hmm. you have like maiden versus crone, and like yes. it's just that at different stages in your life, you'll be focused on different things. Also, maybe like yes, 
And yeah. we can see Baba Yaga is an antagonist because she does trap Vasilisa and tells her, you know, you have to do these things or I'll kill you. But in another way, Baba Yaga is the helper because in doing this, she, at the end, Vasilisa gets all these riches that she wouldn't have had otherwise. And is she is able to escape her evil sisters and stepmother. Ah, see, that's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I love I loved these poems. <laughs> Thank it's, you. It's such a treat to go through them with you and uncover even more meanings. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's no way to put that all in the book because it would be like a thousand no. pages. But <laughs> Yeah. You could <laughs> do a whole book just know. on that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> people who know the fairy tales or who look into them can get more from them. Yeah, that's great. Um, do you want to move on to the Blessed sure. Curse? Okay, let me find that one. Sorry. Way ahead in the book. There we go. There we go. Okay. All right. Blessed Curse, The Seven Ravens. Dear, you were blessed, the beloved daughter your parents wished for for so long. Dear, you were cursed. With your birth, your seven brothers lost their human forms. Your fault, your fault, your fault. Dear, you were blessed. The good stars gave you a gift to unlock castle doors. Dear, you were cursed. You lost the good star's gift and surrendered your own finger bone. Your pain, your pain, your pain. Dear, you were blessed. The glass castle shattered, a frosted illusion brought down by your sacrifice, your blood. Dear, you were cursed. Your brothers were restored, but you remained the girl whose life had never been her own. Your love, your love, your love. Dear, you were cursed. No prince waited, tall and strong among the glass shards, to mourn over your missing finger, order a replacement made of precious metal, weld you whole. Dear, you were blessed. You gazed at the stump on your left hand, a hole gutted from your heart, made visible to all. You said, I'm whole, I'm whole, I'm whole. Thank you so much. Another awesome, like, <laughs> sense of resilience in this poem. Like, it's so inspiring. Um, I'm not familiar with the fairy tale of the Seven Ravens at all. Um, so I'm intrigued to hear you, if you're willing to give an explanation <laughs> yeah. of what happens I mean, in it. I don't want to describe the whole story because it's, yeah. like, pretty long. Um, if you, anyone is familiar with, with kind of, there's a group of fairy tales that are about brother, a, a number of brothers who get transformed into birds. So there's the seven ravens, the six swans, they're kind of similar. So um, in the raven one in particular, it's when the seven brothers were formed, were born first and the mother wanted a daughter. And actually let me best backtrack and say, if anyone who's listening to this is a fairy scholar, there's like many fairy tale scholars. There's many, many versions of <laughs> each of these fairy tales. So there's anything I say, there's gonna be, well, well, not in this version. Well, not in that version. But, um, but when she was born, her brothers turned into ravens. Um, her, her mother wished for a daughter so much, but then the, the brothers turned into ravens. Um, so this daughter felt like it was her burden to get her, to get her brothers back into their human form and 
lots of things happen. I'm not going to go into all of it, but she goes up. The brothers are like captured in a glass castle and she has to go on this big quest to get them back. And she has a key that she's going to use, but she loses the key and she has to cut off her own finger and use her finger bone as the lock to unlock the door of the castle. So it's very a lot of masochism, body horror, which really appeals to me in this case. It's very dark. And when she does that, when she unlocks the door and gets in the castle, her brothers go back into their human forms. So she rescued them. And it's interesting in other versions that are similar to this fairy tale, like in the wild swans, the six swans, the protagonist, the female protagonist ends up marrying a prince at the end. But in this version, she doesn't. She's just kind of, it's just the brothers got their human form and the princess um, or the, the girl became the girl um, was happy that her brothers were back. The end. <laughs> there was like no happy, happy yet for after for her. So it was just kind of her there without this finger that had been cut off and, and she saved her brothers, but did she save herself? So that was kind of what I was attracted to in the story was, was the idea that she didn't need a prince. She didn't need to like marry the prince or get the riches, just going through this journey and giving up a part of herself um, and showing how strong she was. That was enough for her to say like, I'm whole I'm myself. I don't have this burden of having to feel like I'm to blame for my brothers being turned into birds. You know, she felt her whole life like this was her fault, even though really it wasn't because it was just fate or whatever. Um, But just going through this journey and putting yourself through all this pain and coming out the other side and being like, no, I'm whole as I am and I'm enough by myself. Um, was kind of the journey that I was going through that I was going for. Yeah. I, I love that sensibility and also just like the striking image of the metal to replace her finger. I was just like, Ooh, this is a cyborg moment. (laughs) Well, (laughs) but I'm glad that you're pulling. Yeah. I mean, that's another actually pretty common thing in fairy tales that I think I, I had another poem in this collection, the maiden without hands where her whole arm gets chopped off and then replaced with like a metal, arm so it's actually pretty common (laughs) yeah I guess that's what like prosthetics would have to be made of back then (laughs) like wood or metal so (laughs) yeah they didn't have plastic yet (laughs) but that's fascinating because it's just like um replacing a part of the self with um something inorganic and just like yeah that sense of perseverance but also that she has it even without the finger at the end is really is really interesting and also like does it specify which finger it was in the story i believe it was i'm almost positive it was her pinky her tiny her little finger yeah oh that's fascinating it's like losing that part of the self is almost like losing i don't know the smallness like she yes Yes, exactly yes (laughs) and also that the smallest part of her was powerful because she used that bone as a key to unlock the door of the castle that her brothers were trapped in so and what do you think the poem is responding to and the idea of fate and free will because this whole time she's being told this is her fault and yes um i th- i mean for me this one is pretty personal because i have a very masochistic side to me um so i think there is this tendency um more with women probably just because of the way that we've been taught to put others before ourselves um, just by society. But 
but really with anyone I think could happen, you know, based on what your childhood was like, there's a tendency to see, to believe that you have to suffer to deserve love or to deserve goodness. Um, just this sort of like, you have to make up for whatever pain you're birth and your life circumstances might have caused to other people, like not, not intentionally, but just, um, through circumstances, through the circumstances of whatever your life, you know, like everybody, every child is in some way a burden on their parents. And for some more than others, um, I definitely felt as a child that I really had a, felt a burden to make my parents happy. So I think that that kind of reflected in this poem. She was like, you know, she was the the last child after all these brothers, her mother had wished for a daughter for so long. But then when the daughter was finally born, the brothers turned into ravens. So it was kind of like all this, none of this was her choice. And that's really all of our experience when we're born into this world. We don't choose what family to be born into. We don't choose who we're going to grow up with and what wishes or ideas they're going to project on us. And some of us internalize that into this idea of like, if I punish myself enough or if I make up enough for whatever wrong I might have done, then maybe then I'll deserve happiness. That's kind of a flawed way of thinking because, you know, you can always punish yourself more and none of this stuff really makes sense. So nothing really works until the end when she finally, after losing a part of her body, just makes the decision to say, no, I'm, I'm whole. I'm enough by myself. I don't need a prince or anything. I'm just, I'm whole. Yeah. So that makes the that, journey. That makes that message so much more powerful if she ends up alone. And it's not that like, I think that people are a bit harsh about fairy tales where women end up married because it's not always a burden, you know, <laughs> certainly yeah. in those circumstances yeah, yeah, yeah. back then. Um, but in this case, like having that power to stand alone and it came from within and something that is hers um, and that she can be whole even with the loss of something. I think that that's yes. really, really important. I think that you depict that well in the poem, too. Thanks. Yeah, I'm always drawn to, like, the violence in the poems, too. Just, like, in this one, it's that, you know, she has to cut off her finger and use it as a knife, as a as a lock. Um, in other ones, like in the Six Wands, which is a similar one, and there's also a very, there's also a poem based on that one in here. It's that she has to sew these shirts out of nettles and she's constantly bleeding from touching the nettles. Um, there's so much like really fairy tales. People think they're, you know, happy fantasy sometimes, but they have a lot in common with horror horror and horror probably has a lot of horror has its roots in fairy tales and folk tales. So. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the one thing that I've heard said about one of my favorite horror movies, Suspiria is that it's mm, a fairy that's tale. That's my favorite. Yeah, <laughs> it's a fairy tale made into a horror movie, right? And like yeah, it all checks yeah, yeah. out. So you've got the witch. <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah, that's actually my favorite, my favorite horror movie. So it's that's funny so that awesome. you mentioned that one. <laughs> Next up, Suspiria poems. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, and I thought that was really interesting in your intro too, because you were talking about how you really loved like both the kind of like bloodiness of the original ones and also the the um disneyified kind of yeah sugary princess stuff and i yes. think that people <laughs> will often put those in opposition to each other so what's your relationship to kind of both I mean, sides I of don't, that yeah i don't think they are in opposition i actually think that considering when these stories were written and how brutal reality was for many women at the time and how few choices they had that the idea of the fairy tale 
ending, the happily ever after ending that very few people actually got in real life. And they could really only get it through telling these stories and imagining it. It's very empowering in a way. Um, so I don't think that they have to be, you know, dichotomy. Dichotom- I don't know how to say the word. Dichotomies. <laughs> they don't have to be yeah. opposed that way. Um, they can coexist, you know, and you can um, have these really, really, really dark elements and still have a happy ending. Actually, it's kind of my approach to horror, too, in my not to give too much away, but like in my horror novels, you know, I, I want to end with that, that idea of hope. And I don't think that takes away from the horror. Um, and if anything, it makes it more powerful. And I also don't think like bringing it also around to feminism. Like, I don't think that you're losing out on feminism by acknowledging the power of a happily ever after ending. Um, and you don't have to read everything literally. Like, you know, a lot of these, fairy tale words were ciphers so um like ciphers are symbols for something else so when it's someone was like beautiful sometimes that was just a cipher for saying that they were a good person they were the protagonist that we were rooting for and yes that is problematic in today's world but that's it doesn't have to be physical beauty you know it could be there they were a good person they were a kind person and then when at the end they they got married, they lived happily ever after. It can just be sort of a symbol for they found peace, they found a good life. It doesn't have to be the idea of just, it could only be through the prince, only through heterosexual love, only this or that. Like everything's working on the level of symbol and archetype and can be interpreted a million different ways. Yeah, I think in some ways like that distaste for princess culture which I, I get into this argument somewhat frequently with people because I loved <laughs> princesses as a kid. And I felt, even though like it, it didn't really have anything to do with feelings about monarchy because I'm an anarchist, so like yeah. <laughs> monarchy, but like they're an early archetype of feminine power for young, yeah. young people. And um, I think that in some cases that distaste is uh, disdain for the hyper feminine and people don't want to unpack that. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, it's another form of misogyny really yeah. because if you are happy, you don't, not that you have to be feminine, but if you want to be feminine, if that's your identity and that makes you happy, you can be that and still be powerful and still be intelligent and still be independent. You know, those things don't have to be opposed. Yeah. It reminds me too of how, um, bell hooks used to read romance novels all the time (laughs) and just like talked about how they're great because it's part of, uh, women's culture and nice things happening to women in those stories and like women yes, being absolutely. loved. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. There's a think, big big move push toward the romance novels as feminist um these days. Yeah. So it's interesting to see like how these ideas kind of come together in your collection too and the things that we're talking about today. Cause it's just like I think that that, that harmony between those two sides of fairy tales is apparent. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. That was definitely in my mind when I was writing it. Did you want to get into Uncaged? Because it kind of Sure, we can do that one. Yeah, we can read that one now. Okay. So this one is not based on a particular fairy tale. This one is in kind of the epilogue. There's a couple poems that are just maybe more personal. Um, Just kind of like my... My... um, what a journey I went through both in life and through writing this book and kind of 
yeah, I'll just, I'll just read it. Okay. (laughs) Uncaged. I spent my childhood bent over books, tracing the words with my eyes, my hands and heart till those words leapt off the page, transplanted themselves beneath my skin, a secret tattoo. I grew older and those words stiffened to stone, enchanted as if by some witch they hardened and hemmed me in. My heart, protected behind stories of perfect princesses and noble princes, sacrifice and suffering always rewarded with true unsullied love. Why bother with real life when it could never, ever live up? My heart, behind those bars, sprouted feathers that grew into wings, a songbird that beat itself against the bones of my ribcage, desperate, so desperate for someone to witness its pain. Like a nightingale in a castle no human inhabited, singing its voice raw, notes echoing off stone walls, swallowed into the endless dark. Eventually, inevitably, that songbird heart transformed, chiseled with desire, carved into a key that churned a lock and cracked my cage. Another spell set into motion, wished for and feared at once, a bird born in darkness to suddenly thrust into light. My bird heart danced with the frenzy of a moth drawn closer, closer, closer to a flame bright enough to burn its feathers off. And without those feathers, there was no lovely enchanted songbird, no pure princess, just me, an ordinary girl with a sore heart and a map of words beneath my skin. Words that had been cage, burden, reckless hope now became the only map that could guide me away from the witch's castles, the illusionist's gardens, the strange creature's forests, and back home home to the only sorcery I needed. The wings, words, power, love, blooming from my tender, fertile, broken, but mended heart. Thank you so much. What I love about this poem is like, it really, it really ties together everything that we've been talking about. (laughs) Um, In some of the imagery, just like how your love of fairy tales becomes a fairy tale becomes reality i don't know and yes. i know we're not supposed to confuse the speaker with the author but like oh i think in this in these last couple ones you can because the kind of me stepping outside of the stories and and speaking as the author mm-hmm. yeah that's so um special and valuable i think because it's like you have that thoughtful forward and then we get to see the exploration of how you go through it and then uh these poems like really kind of both internal and externalize it. So they, you know, external, I guess, the internal journey that maybe you went through in writing all of these. It's almost like at the end of a Shakespeare play. <laughs> so <laughs> yes. it comes out and they're just like, yep. <laughs> you know, it's a really nice uh, tying up of of what you explored. Um, so I think that it also, like, reading this, I'm like, yes, this has also been... Um, you know, I don't think relatability is necessarily a great metric of poetry, but I think that when it works well, it works really well. And I think that what you're getting at in this poem, too, even though it's deeply personal, is also just like part of the magic of fairy tales and yeah. how they get communicated to us. What do you think is operating behind the universality of 
the appeal of fairy tales, which is a very big oh. question, but yeah, that that is a big question. <laughs> I mean, I think it goes back to what we were saying earlier that they work on archetypes so that everybody can kind of get what they need to get from them. I think they developed, they did develop in some ways as stories to guide people through life. And I was going to say children, but then I changed it to people because they were told to older, older people as well. And we're not just children's stories, um, but really for all ages, but they were meant to like kind of guide you through life and give you lenses to see difficult situations through like, for instance, you know, an arranged marriage, see it through the lens of like, my husband is a beast, he's a monster, but maybe he's going to transform into the handsome prince or seeing it through the lens of like my evil, my parents are so poor and we're so hungry that they abandoned us in the woods. And then maybe there's something that looks like a solution and it's a candy cottage, you know, it's some kind of temptation. Um, but maybe it's not what it seems. So all these situations, all these kind of archetypal stories could apply to, you know, millions and billions of different situations in life. Um, so I think everybody can read them in their own way. And I think especially because we do get exposed to fairy tales at such a young age that they kind of become a part of our personal mythology in a way. Um, so they become like a part of the way that we conceptualize life and what we're hoping for and our values. And it can be different for different people. Um, you know, some people might gravitate more toward the love part and wanting to find love. Might Some, it might be safety. Some, it might be wealth or it might be creation, creating something. Some people might want to become like the witch or the fairy godmother and they want to become magical in some way, maybe through their creative powers or their ability to help others. Um, I think it could be a million different things. And because the symbolism in fairy tales is so powerful and evocative in so many different ways, like even in this poem at the end, I use the similar symbol of the, like I was thinking back to the story of the seven ravens when I talked about like the key, the bone key and the bone lock, like these are just very visceral images that could be used in so many different ways. And like the images of the songbird and the feathers and there are other poems in the collection about like girls getting transformed into birds and kept in cages. Um, plenty of bird imagery throughout many fairy tales. So yeah, there's just like all these kind of these images that speak deeply to our psyche on like a beyond the logical level. So I think that kind of is part of the universality of the stories. Of course, we all know that fairy tales, folk tales exist in like every culture in the world and always have. Um, it's part of like the human drive to, to create stories that, um, that give us meaning and they're not super specific stories. And that's again, going back to the idea of like, you know, they just give a couple words about the heroine or hero. Like maybe it says he's strong and brave or she's beautiful and kind. And these seem might seem like limiting words, but actually they're they're so broad that they can they can mean almost anything depending on what your values are and what you think that someone is who is beautiful or kind or strong right. or brave, you know. So some of those cultural ciphers you were talking about, like, yes, <laughs> yeah, and how they transmute depending on what culture is encountering them and how they transform with the reader. Yeah. And I, I loved all of that imagery that you touched on in this poem, just like um, all of the bird and heart and moth and just like how there's peril and danger, but also a sense of homecoming in it. Yes. That's yeah. Awesome. And I also I feel like 
something can be problematic and you can still love it. Like that, that for me, those don't have to be opposed. Like, I almost feel like you can't help what you love. Like maybe there are some restrictive messages in fairy tales or limiting or limiting messages, especially in, you know, the Disney versions, but that's, I'm never going to stop loving them because I I grew up with them and they speak to me on like a beyond the logical level. So you can interrogate them intellectually, but you could still, you could still love it and let it have an emotional impact on you. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, I guess there's that also like element of escapism and how escapism can be a protective (laughs) thing at some points. And yes, I, I think that, yeah. You get that at different points, too, in the fairy tales, I think. Yeah. I mean, Um, telling a story is a way to get yourself through an impossible situation. Yeah. And writing poems can help us. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that circles it back to the start where we're talking about, like, how, yeah, just working through emotions through poetry could be so effective and impactful. And I think that you've done a wonderful thing with this collection and exploring um, the bloodiness and beauty of these stories. Thank you so much. That was exactly what I hoped to do. So, <laughs> And I also hope that, you know, I know not everybody, but I hope that some people, not every single one, but see a couple of the stories that they never read. And they're like, oh, that sounds cool. I want to look that up and read that. Because you can read them all online. You can just Google the title and it will come up, you know, in the old original, the Grimm's fairy tales. They're all online. So. Yeah, that's part of what was making me really take my time with the collection. It's like, <laughs> oh, I really want to have it done in time, but I won't. So <laughs> that's okay. It's okay to take your time with it. You know, it makes it, uh, it makes it special. I don't know. And then if, a... if you want to know even more about the history, I really recommend checking out the Carter Howe School of Folk. I think it's a fairy tales and the fantastic, but it's Carter Howe, C-A-R-T. E-R-H-A-U-G-H and they're, she, they do a, have a whole bunch of online lectures that you can get on their website if you just Google it um, that they did during the pandemic about like the history of the fairy tales and how the feminism ties in and all that kind of that is stuff. Excellent. So Awesome. Um, so I guess that's a good place to wrap up. Was there anything you wanted to let the listeners know about? Um, no, just I think if you follow me on Twitter, anytime I have any kind of announcement, I'll put it on Twitter. So that's probably the best place to keep track. And my username on there is capital S, capital C, underscore parent, like mom or dad parent. And the book is coming out when? Well, it's actually, I mean, it's supposed to be coming out on August 1st. Like that's when the Kindle version is going to be out, the ebook version. So if you pre-order the ebook, I think you're going to get it on August 1st. But the paperback, some people have already been getting it. So it's kind of already (laughs) out. Yeah. So Excellent. if you order the paperback, I think it will just come in a couple of days. So, <laughs> Oh, great. <laughs> yeah, I will do that because I was waiting for August. So. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> great. <laughs> okay. Well, thank you so much for coming on today. Thank you so much. It was so exciting to get to actually just talk about my writing for an hour. I don't think I've ever done that before in this kind of forum. So it's a big deal. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> for me. so awesome. Well, I hope you do it again because this was fascinating. Thank you so much. Hopefully yeah. Thoughts out too. <laughs> I'm sure yes. they did. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you next time.